Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people each year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me and find out about some of our permanent residents, three Easterners who help shape what we think of as the Old West, Henry Derringer, John B. Stetson, and Owen Wister. I'm Joe Lex, your host for All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. When you think of the Old West in the United States, what pops into your mind? It's probably cowboys with broad-brimmed hats who say, smile when you say that, partner, and who shoot from the hip. The Old West, as we think of it, lasted only from about 1865 to 1895, but it has fueled the imaginations of millions of people around the world for more than 120 years. Did you know that three people associated with the Old West were Philadelphians? Henry Derringer with his eponymous pistol, John B. Stetson with his 10-gallon hat, and Owen Wister, author of the first Western novel, all came from Philly and are buried at the Laurel Hills. We'll start with Russ Dodge and Henry Derringer. Russ? What can you tell us about Henry Derringer? Well, Henry Derringer is definitely known for the very small handheld single shot personal pistol that has been given his name over time. Uh, Derringer the name has become Derringer the noun or uh, as a small pistol. So uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about him and how that happened. Um, Henry Derringer was born in 1786. He's actually Henry Derringer Jr. Spelled D-E-R-I-N-G-E-R, one R. And his father was a gunsmith. And he learned his trade like his father did. And his father actually sent him to Richmond, Virginia in 1808 to learn the trade. And he came back and set up his own gun shop. Where was that, the gun shop? His gun shop, he had several, but his most famous one was uh, in the Northern Liberty section on North Front Street. Uh, the 90, excuse me, the 1841 McElroy uh, Street Directory or Directory of Philadelphia lists them at 370 North Front Street, which translates about to where Callow Hill is today. Callow Hill and Front Street. Uh, um, so just know. just outside the city limits of Philadelphia at that time. At that time, yes, because yeah. uh, Philadelphia was still lots of boroughs, and not until the uh, the. Yeah. Uh, the 1850s law that incorporated everything. Yeah, and just just as an aside, um, about that time, Northern Liberties, I think, was the seventh seventh biggest city mm-hmm. in the United it States. Was. Yeah, Philly was third, and Northern Liberties was, and then Southwark was what ninth or tenth, I think. And because of all the population in uh, that was taking away all the revenue and all the taxes, that's one of the reasons why they decided to incorporate it all into the city of Philadelphia we know today. Yeah. 
Uh, so Henry Derringer learned to be a gunsmith, but he did not yet invent the pocket pistol. He was, he was, I assume he was doing some standard pistols at the time. He actually wasn't doing pistols to start off. He was a, a rifle maker. Okay. Uh, in fact, he made uh, the called the 1816 and 1817, uh, basically the version of Pennsylvania version of Kentucky rifle. Okay. And he would make them for private uh, private ownership and also contracted by the United States government. So he was a rifle maker. In fact, when he's listed in 18, 1841, the directory of Philadelphia, he's listed as a rifle maker, not pistol maker. Pistols hmm. came later in his life. Okay. Um, he... After about 20, 25 years of making rifles and being successful at it, uh, he fiddled around with a personal uh, personal pistol, mm-hmm. and he developed in the 1840s what we know classically as the Derringer pistol. Now, what were pocket pistols like before that? Why did he feel there was a need for something different? Well, the famous pocket pistols at the time were called the Queen Anne's pistol. I believe it's that was created in the 1600s, but... Um, Various variants and versions came after that, but they were basically for personal defense, as you can imagine. Uh, but they weren't very chivalrous, so they weren't really used really used in terms of everyday daily life or had it around with them. Um, in fact, some some errors of time period thought that they were um, very unchivalrous and they were uh, low for low people to use, uh, but. As the Western expansion happened, uh, people more and more wanted something for personal protection. And he developed this single-shot, small personal pistol of lowest caliber, uh, which was uh, muzzle-loaded one mm-hmm. time, and could be easily concealed. In fact, it became very popular amongst women at that time period because it was concealed. It was actually sometimes called a muff pistol yeah. because it would fit in the women's hand-warmer muffs. Uh, and... Popularity exploded, however, uh, due to the uh, gold rush, the California gold rush, when people started going on the thousands to California after John Sutter discovered gold at Sutter's Mill in California. And it was a very, very um, chaotic time. All these people rushing out. Federal government and municipal government didn't catch up with it, so there was much lawlessness there. So people would have these personal pistols to protect themselves. And... John, De- excuse me, Henry Derringer's pistol really fit the bill. It was, they were cheap. Mm-hmm. They were, it was cheaper to buy two Derringer pistols than to buy one uh, uh, personal uh, handgun. Hmm. So that's another thing that happened too. So they were Zebra concealable, mm-hmm. and you know it has the uh, the aura of being the personal protection of riverboat gamblers and yeah. and. People in saloons, which was does have a basic truth for it, but people had it just for the fact that they were able to quickly um, protect themselves. Um, it was a it was a single shot, one time. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to actually to um, to to load, which is the reason why people usually carry two around. And it was the farther away you were, obviously, since it was very low caliber, the less of a, a stopping power it had. Sure. So it was really very close quarters. So if you're in a bar fight or you're in a, a, a dispute and a person's threatening you, you can quickly pick it out. They don't have it and shoot them right in the gut. And didn't often kill them, but at least it will knock them down. Now, just for perspective, 
what was the size of the Derringer compared to the average pistol in the 1840s, 1850s? Well, the, think about it. The average pistol, I don't know the actual dimensions offhand. Okay. The average pistol would fit in person's uh, person's grip, person's uh, palm. Okay. Uh, well, the, the stock would fit in. The Derringer pistol could fit entirely in a person's palm from, yeah, from stock to, uh, to breech, yeah. to, to, to barrel. Yeah, I've heard it called the father of concealed carry. Mm-hmm. Now, Henry Derringer produced these, and we know it today as Derringer, D-E-R-I-N-G-E-R. However, Henry Derringer, uppercase with one R, did not patent the Derringer when he created it. And now, I always thought up until relatively recently, he just didn't get around to patent. But that's not actually the case. Um, He didn't feel the need, I found out, there's evidence, he didn't feel the need to patent it because it was... Uh, probably covered under copyright laws. He didn't invent the gun. He invented mm-hmm. a certain kind of gun. Okay. Which he thought that, and he thought wrong. Okay. Because <laughs> as we know today, the Derringer is uh, is a common name for a small handheld uh, personal yeah. pistol. Um, and they were called Derringer's pistols. R, one R, and S for a long period of time until people realized, or gunsmiths realized, that they can kind of get around that because they were so popular they, they were so popular that other gunsmiths especially Colton Remington wanted to get into the business so they would do kind of underhanded things A change the to two R's which means it's not a Henry Derringer or in one gunsmith actually hired a man named John Derringer so he could legally say yeah. Derringer's making more pistols he was, he was a janitor I think he was yeah <laughs> and, and that caused Henry Derringer's uh, um Problems and no end at the end of his life. He yeah. spent the last 20, 25 years of his life litigating all these uh, uh, copyright infringements. Yeah. And, and he lived to be pretty old, too. He died in 1868, so yeah. he died at age 81, 82, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so he, for the last, but as soon as he died in 1868, his company stopped making Derringers, period. In fact, his company uh, ended. There were no more Derringers after 1868. So any, no kidding. So any Derringer pistol made after 1870 is officially. 100% not a Henry Derringer pistol. Is, is there anything on record about what he thought when John Wilkes Booth used Derringer to assassinate Lincoln? You know, it's funny. There's no, I haven't re- encountered anything, but actually John Wilkes Booth using the Derringer was one of the windfalls for the Derringer pistol because it became very, very famous that he used the Derringers and people, uh, after their initial shock over you know, the assassination of the president, uh, the utility of having a very close quarter single shot pistol for protection became very popular, especially since the West was expanding at that period of time too. Uh, with the transcontinental railroad being uh, completed in 1869, um, people needed the personal protection, and they were cheap. That's basically the reason why. Yeah. So, and it's funny because the the Derringer pistol that John Wilkes Booth uh, used to assassinate uh, Abraham Lincoln was for a time period thought to be not authentic. The, the, the authentic one is at Ford's Theater. Sure. And there was actually a thieving ring from the 1850s and 1860s that steals items like that and replaces it. So there was question whether they stole that the uh, the Derringer out of Ford's Theater and replaced it with a, a, a fake. So the, in the 1980s, the FBI, actually in the 1990s, the FBI were contracted to test the pistol. Now, was it the actual pistol that... Uh, that uh, John Wilkes Booth used to uh, assassinate Abraham Lincoln. Well, there's no way to know that 100% for sure, other than they grabbed it and say it, but it is an actual uh, pistol from the time period. Okay. So they, they ballistics. And there's actually a crack in it, too. 
and they believe the crack could have happened when John Wilkes Booth dropped the, the Derringer after jumping down from the balcony onto yeah, the, onto stage, the stage, stage theater. Yeah. So that's that's how they have a pretty good idea of the provenance of it because he dropped it immediately and it was recovered immediately. It's fired too. Did they ever find a role in duels? No, they never find a role in duels because they're too small. Okay. Uh, as duels, as uh, the classic duel is, you know, 20 paces, turn and fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you fire a Derringer pistol at somebody at 20 paces, it has to be a very, very lucky shot to, to kill them. Okay. Because uh, uh, as after it's not rifled, so the muzzle velocity uh, is immediately as soon as it leaves the uh, the barrel is uh, immediately dissipated. So it doesn't have much knocking down power the farther away you get it. That's why yeah. it was specifically for close quarters. Yeah. Stick it in somebody's gut, it'll kill him. Shoot him from 50 paces, it's not likely to kill him. Shoot, him, shoot him in the back of the head from two feet, you're going to kill him. You're going to kill him, yeah. yeah. And even then, uh, Derringer is buried here in Laurel Hall Cemetery, and there's nothing on his gravesite that indicates that he was uh, the progenitor of the most famous personal pocket pistol. And I always thought it would be interesting to somebody to come along and put that notoriety on him because he really got the uh, got a bad deal after inventing his, partially through his own uh, misunderstanding of the laws, but for the last 25 years he was such litigation to try to uh, and it didn't do any good at all. I'd like to see him get some uh, more recognition for his gravesite. Yeah. Alright. Russ, thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. Before John Stetson, there was no such thing as a cowboy hat. Now, of course, it is probably the first thing one thinks of when the word cowboy or the Old West is used. Some people claim that the cowboy hat is the most recognized attire associated with Western countries. The first cowboy hat was designed by John Batterson Stetson in 1865, toward the end of the American Civil War. John B. Stetson was born in New Jersey in May of 1830, the eighth of 12 children. His father, Stephen Stetson, was a hatter. As a youth, John Stetson worked with his father until he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. His doctor predicted the young man had only a short time to live. He attempted to join the Union Army, but was rejected for health reasons. Given his poor prognosis, John left the hat-making business to explore the American West, afraid this would be his only chance to see it. There he met drovers, bullwhackers, gold seekers, and cowboys. The hat man was rather put off by the flea-infested coonskin caps favored by many of these Westerners, and wondered whether the fur felt he had learned back east would work for a lightweight, all-weather hat suitable for the West. When he returned home, he founded the John B. Stetson Company in Philadelphia in 1865 as a manufacturer of headwear. The company's hats soon came to be known by the name of their manufacturer, the Stetson. He called his first cowboy hat the Boss of the Plains. It was made using fine fur from beaver, rabbit, and other small animals with fine hair, and it was perfect for the demands of the western lands. The Boss of the Plains has undergone several modifications over the years to become the cowboy hat we have now. Mexicans redesigned the hat in the late 19th century and gave it a tall crown to provide insulation. And they made the brim a little wider so as to provide shade from the Mexican sun. Then they curved the brim edges upward so as not to interfere with their rope. 
The hat gained so much popularity that syndicated columnist Lucius Beebe named it as, quote, the hat that won the West. The Stetson was not cheap. Stetson made three versions of the boss of the plane's hat. The first one, made from regular felt, sold for $5 retail. That was about a week's wage for a common laborer. The second one, made from a very fine felt, sold for $10. And the third one, made from extra fine beaver felt or nutria felt, sold for $30. Stetson initially never bothered to advertise very much. He figured that the hat would speak for itself. He once said, there's no advertisement equal to a well-pleased customer. Why was it so popular? Noted one observer, it kept the sun out of your eyes and off your neck. It was like an umbrella. It gave you a bucket, the crown, to water your horse, and a cup, the brim, to water yourself. And it made a hell of a fan, which you need sometimes for a fire, but more often to shunt cows this direction or that, end quote. Plus, it looked really, really good. The name John B. Stetson Company was embossed in gold in every hat band. All the high-crowned, wide-brimmed, soft-felt western hats that followed were playing off the cowboy image created by Stetson. The Stetson cowboy hat was also a symbol of the highest quality. Several pelts of rabbit, beaver, or hare were required for each hat. Western icons such as Buffalo Bill Cody, Calamity Jane, Will Rogers, Annie Oakley, Tom Mix, and the Lone Ranger all wore Stetsons. The company also made hats for law enforcement departments such as the Texas Rangers. Stetson's Western-style hats were worn by employees of the National Park Service, like Smokey the Bear, U.S. cavalry soldiers, and many U.S. presidents. Under Stetson's direction, the John B. Stetson Company became one of the largest hat firms in the world. Stetson Hats won numerous awards, but as his company grew, he faced the challenge of developing and keeping a reliable labor force. Reportedly, people working in the hat trade at that time tended to drift from employer to employer, and absenteeism was rampant. Some blamed dementia caused by mercury fumes used to cure the felt, while others blamed alcohol. Stetson, guided by his Baptist religious principles, believed that by providing for his employees, he would give stability to their lives and attract higher caliber workers. Unlike most other employers, Stetson offered many benefits to entice workers to stay. Stetson made sure his employees had a clean, safe place to work. He built a hospital, a park, and houses for his 5,000 employees. Stetson's progressive thinking allowed his original Philadelphia factory to grow to 25 buildings on nine acres at 5th and Montgomery in the Kensington section with its offices at 1801 Germantown Avenue. By 1915, nine years after Stetson's death, 5,400 employees were turning out 3.3 million hats, and the company was taking in about $11 million per year. That has an equivalent today of $200 million. In 1920, the company had more than 200 employees who could claim more than 25 years of service. That same year, the company paper listed employee Christmas bonuses and gifts of more than half a million dollars. Stetson profited handsomely from his business, but he gave back much to his communities. 
Near the end of his life, Stetson began donating almost all his money to charitable organizations. He built grammar in high schools and helped build colleges, including Philadelphia's Temple University. He helped establish the Philadelphia YMCA. In 1878, Stetson co-founded the Sunday Breakfast Rescue Mission with department store owner John Wanamaker, buried at St. James the Less Episcopal Churchyard on Clearfield Street in Philadelphia, and seed company owner Washington Attlee Burpee, buried in Doylestown. It's a shelter and soup kitchen which exists yet today on North 13th Street to assist the homeless population of Philadelphia. Stetson donated generously to the DeLand Academy in DeLand, Florida, his winter home, which in 1888 was renamed John B. Stetson University. Their sports teams are, of course, the Stetson Hatters. And in 1900, Stetson University founded the first law school in Florida, Stetson University Law School. Stetson died at his winter home on February 19, 1906, at age 76. He was stricken with apoplexy and died at home without regaining consciousness. The New York Times brief obituary noted that the family will leave with the body on the midnight train for Philadelphia. He is buried in the family mausoleum in the Ashland section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Stetsons are no longer made in Philadelphia. The factories moved out west decades ago. But the 10-gallon hat of John B. Stetson has become part of Western and American culture. In the 1980s and 1990s, virtually every male country music star wouldn't dare be caught dead without his John B. Stetson. Nowadays, Stetson's most expensive hat, the Diamante, retails for $5,000 and is still made from high-grade beaver plus chinchilla fur. John B. Stetson, an Easterner of the Old West. So, good morning, Tom. Good morning, Joe. Good to be here. Yeah, and uh, if you hear background noises, that's okay. We are outside. You will hear birds. You will hear traffic. Um, with the way luck goes, we'll hear a train go by also. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so, Owen Wister. Why is Owen Wister an Easterner of the Old West? Owen Wister is really a fascinating conundrum. He was the quintessential Philadelphia gentleman, born to a very good Philadelphia family, yet his primary claim to fame today is that he wrote the quintessential Western, the Virginian, which has been made into at least four or five screen adaptations. It was a TV show for many years. When you think of a Western, chances are that the images that are coming to your mind are from the Virginian, especially that that poker game that goes sour when the man in the dark hat says, your bet, you son of a bitch, and the Virginian just takes out his gun, puts it on the table, and says, when you call me that, smile. <laughs> that is one of the classic lines of That Wister's. is one of the classic lines. But Wister, almost by accident became a Western writer and created, as I said, the quintessential Western. His main novel, The Virginian, really captures most of the key characters and situations which have become stock elements of almost any Westerns. 
Um, he also wrote dozens of short stories, but how he got to the West is a really interesting story in and of itself. Yeah, he, I mean, he's an East Coaster. He is, he is, the Wister family is very well known, whether it's spelled with an E or with an A, the, it's, it's very well known in uh, the Philadelphia area. He came from what is known as the junior branch of the family, the Wisters okay. with an E. Okay. Um, his ancestor, Johannes Wister or John Wister, uh, built Grumblethorpe, uh, the big house on Germantown Avenue, sure. which is still a historic landmark today. Sure. And Owen Wister had an interesting heritage. On his father's side, he came from this old line Wister family. Other relatives included the Jones family, the Welsh family that actually got to Pennsylvania before William Penn. His mother's side was a little bit more exotic. His maternal grandfather was Pierce Butler, a Philadelphia gentleman descended from a founding father who had been given or who had inherited a huge plantation in South Carolina with thousands of slaves. His maternal grandmother was Fanny Kemble, the British actress who was considered one of the great beauties and one of the great minds of the early 19th century. Uh, his mother, Sarah Butler Wister, was uh, the oldest daughter. Her parents had divorced when she was relatively young, but she was very much her mother's child. She was brilliant. She spoke several languages. She had visited Europe many times. She was musically talented. She knew people like Henry James, the novelist, and she wanted to make sure that Owen had the same advantages. He inherited his mother's love of music. Uh, He went to English and uh, Swiss boarding schools when he was younger. This was very unusual. He learned languages like she did. He also uh, loved to write. He eventually came home and attended Harvard University, where he studied music. He loved music, and evidently he was a very talented musician. Um, He graduated from Harvard in 1882 with in effect, a summa cum laude degree in music. He was a member of Phi Beta Kappa. Among the friends he made at Harvard was the future president of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt. They were both members of Porcellian. They were both members of Porcellian. I believe they both acted with the Hasty Pudding Club. Uh, Wister wrote several operettas and skits and plays for the club. So it was a very happy time for him, and he was extremely popular. He was six feet tall, uh, very good-looking, charming, witty, cosmopolitan. It's funny, he looked like the picture of health, but evidently he was plagued by both physical and emotional issues that would plague him for the rest of his life. At any rate, after graduation, Wister goes to Europe. His mother, his grandmother rather, Fanny Kemble, puts him in touch with people like Richard Wagner and Franz Liszt. And Owen even performs one of his own compositions for the great Franz Liszt, who tells his grandmother that her grandson has un talent prononcé, a pronounced talent. So it looked like he was set to become a very well-known musician. Composer, musician, sure. Except that Dad said no. His father, who was a very conservative uh, physician, Germantown Quaker, said, no son of mine is going to be a musician a long hair, you're going to come back to the United States and you're going to get a proper job. And Owen succumbed. He said, all right. He came back to America, took a job in a Boston bank where he spent about two years computing interest in a small (laughs) windowless cubbyhole of an office. Ah. Exactly. Ah. 
After two years, he has a massive nervous breakdown. Who yeah. wouldn't? Um, and remember, this was before calculators. I'm surprised it took yeah. him that long. So his very concerned family consults their cousin, Dr. Silas Weir Mitchell, the noted Philadelphia <laughs> yeah. nerve specialist and also a best-selling author. And his advice was, go west, young man. He thought that young men who suffered neurasthenia or nervous breakdowns should get out of the stuffy East Coast, go out west to Colorado or Wyoming and live like a cowboy, rope cattle, sleep under the stars, rough it, and this will help recover their masculine energies. So in the summer of 1885, Owen goes out to Medicine Bow, Medicine Bow Wyoming, and it is exactly what the doctor ordered. He falls in love with the setting, with the people. He says it's like something out of Genesis, this wide open country with air that hasn't been breathed by millions of people. So he spends two months there during the summer of 1885, and it restores his health. He keeps copious journals about the people he encounters, the experiences he's on. He goes back to Philadelphia. Uh, he still wants to follow his father's orders and become... A, a real serious citizen, so he enrolls in Harvard Law School, gets his law degree, and goes to work for a blue-chip uh, Philadelphia law firm, Ralston and Rawl. And he was never really the most dedicated lawyer. I think he said that he, he won one case for them, and that was it. <laughs> Fast forward to 1891. He's living in Bachelor Pad in the Hotel Hamilton, sort of working as a lawyer, and one night he's at the Philadelphia Club, the most exclusive and oldest men's club in the United States, not just Philadelphia, sitting there having claret after dinner with his friend and cousin, Walter Furness, who is the son of the Shakespearean scholar Horace Furness and the nephew of the architect Frank Furness. And they're complaining about the horrible state of American literature. It's all teacups and women authors. And Wister is asking <laughs> where... Pseudo-Victorian. Pseudo-Victorian, yes. Three <laughs> Volume novels by women authors with three names. Yes. And Wister is asking, where is the American Rudyard Kipling who's going to write about real men on our vanishing frontiers? And then he says, I could do that. So according to his own telling of the story, he goes upstairs to the library and writes most of his first Western short story, Hank's Woman, over the course of the night. It's published in Harper's Magazine. They pay him a nice chunk of change. And he begins writing. He becomes a very well-known writer of Western stories, drawing on his journals from his visits west. After his initial visit, he would go back every year for the next decade and spend a couple of months there and, and just collected a huge volume of information, which went into his short stories. So at any rate, he's still supposedly working at the law firm, but basically he's going there every day and working on his short stories and being Philadelphia gentlemen, they say, that's fine, oh, and whatever. In 1898, he marries a cousin, Mary Channing, who is a very intelligent woman uh, dedicated to civic reform and helping the poor. Yeah, she was out of the Boston Channings, the um, founders of Unitarianism. Uh, her family originally came from Boston. She herself grew up in Germantown. Oh, okay. And she and Owen had known each other since childhood. 
He was a few years older, but he first met her when she was an infant. Okay. So they had known each other for ages. Evidently, it was a very happy marriage. They supported each other in their endeavors. They had six children together. So in 1902, Owen sort of strings together a number of his short stories and writes this novel called The Virginian. And it is, as I said, it includes a lot of the features that have become commonplace in every Western. You have the tall, slim, laconic Westerner, the cowboy who is a man of few words but knows how to ride a horse and rope cattle and use a gun. And in this case, a Southerner. So he a is, Southerner, Westerner. He is a Southerner. Yeah. Uh, he never, his name is never mentioned. His nickname is Jeff, short for Jefferson Davis. Mm -hmm. It's implied that he came from an old line Philadelphia, I'm sorry, he came from an old line Virginia family that was impoverished by the Civil War and that he's out west to gain back the family fortunes. He works as a ranch hand at the ranch where the narrator, also unnamed but an eastern tenderfoot, obviously a stand-in for Worcester, is staying. And uh, you have the cowboy, you have the prim and proper uh, New England school marm who finds the cowboy very rough but eventually falls in love with him. And of course, representing the North and the East. And the East, exactly. <laughs> so the novel is really about the different parts of the country coming yeah. together. And then you have, of course, the villain, Trampus, this sort of swarthy character who, you know, in all the movies wears a black hat and uh, delights in... A Stetson, of course. Uh, well, in... In, in the, the movies. In the movies. <laughs> yeah. In the play version, he wore a sombrero. Oh, um, okay. But he delights in tormenting the virtuous Virginian. Uh, and he, he's sort of an interesting villain. He, he keeps a toad ranch. And uh, evidently he does it just really to spite the peep the cowboys around him. Keeps a what? A toad ranch. Toad ranch. A ranch of toads. Read the book. I'm not going to go into it now. Okay. <laughs> you so you have him. You have that uh, you know that scene in the over the poker game with yeah. when you call me that smile. You have the eccentric yet loyal sidekick. You have a vigilante lynching, and of course at the end. You have Trampus calling out the Virginian on his wedding day to the school marm for a shootout. And he shoots before he's given the okay, but that's all right. He misses, and the Virginian kills him. And he and his wife ride off. They become partners in the ranch, and all is well. And since then, that whole thing has become such a cliché. It's, it's, it's a series of clichés. But at that time, it was all original. It was all new. There had been other cow boy novels, but yeah. this was the first one that really had the whole Megilla. Wow. And it was an immediate and an immense success. It had sold over 100,000 copies within its first year of publication. It was also a critical success. The, the New York Times gave it a rave review. It said, this is the closest thing to the American novel that has ever been written. Well, So the, the only person who didn't seem to like it was Wister's mother. He, evidently, she wrote him a long letter about how the school marm wasn't a believable character and the lynching scene was vulgar and uh, <laughs> you, you, you can never please mom. Was, um, was Son of a Bitch actually published? No. no, in the novel at the time, much to Wister's dismay, it's your bet, you blank, 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 blank. 
And I think oh. in the movie versions, they also... It was not until later versions that it was put in. This was still the Victorian era, yeah. and you couldn't use language like that. But Worcester was very upset because this is how cowboys talked. Yeah. So um, that was his big regret. But the novel made him, first of all, it made him very rich. He was already well off, but now yeah. he was extremely wealthy. And it also made him a national celebrity. He was quoted everywhere. He, um, you know, was profiled by every major publication. He went on lecture tours. Everything he did from was news. Yeah. How did this affect his friendship with Teddy Roosevelt? Because he, oh. he and Teddy Roosevelt were were college buddies and were good buddies after that. The they, Virginian was dedicated to Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. And Roosevelt thought that it was wonderful. He. Um, you know, if anything, has strengthened the friendship. By this time, of course, Roosevelt had become president after mm -hmm. McKinley's assassination. And so uh, he invited Worcester and his family to stay at the White House on several different occasions. Let's see, this will come out on probably July. When's your next tour? Well, my next, July. well, let me see. Um, I don't know. I think in August I'm giving a tour on Quakers at Laurel Hill, and we will probably stop by Mr. Worcester's grave, okay. since he is part Quaker, and uh, include him on the tour. Okay. All right. Well, um, fans of Laurel Hill Cemetery, look for that. Tom Keels and uh, Quakers at Laurel Hill. Thank you very much, Joe. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Come to Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill soon and visit these amazing Americans. First, Henry Derringer, who's buried about midway between Mercy Carlisle, the first person buried at Laurel Hill, and portrait artist Thomas Sully, whose painting of Andrew Jackson graces the $20 bill. Then head toward the Schuylkill River and visit Owen Wister's family plot with its simple, identical headstones. But also spend a minute admiring the sarcophagus of Ukrainian-born sailor and photojournalist Alexander Ivanovich Zelenetsky, who has an anchor in front of his monument and has a carving on top of his monument in which he is carrying a camera around his neck. Then head across the Schuylkill to West Laurel Hill for the Stetson Mausoleum. Maybe you'll be lucky and you'll see a 10-gallon hat leaning against the door. There are many other Easterners of the Old West buried at Laurel Hill, including Lieutenant Benjamin Hubert Hodgson in Section 10 of South, who served under George Armstrong Custer and was killed at the Battle of Little Bighorn, and Brevet Major Alfred Sully, who spent many years as a commander during the Indian Wars of the 1860s and 70s, who is in Section A of North. And don't forget to visit Rodeo Earl Smith, a Hollywood stuntman in the golden days of movie westerns, who resides in Section V of Central. To find out more about them, you can take one of the dozens of annual tours available at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Next time on All Bones Considered, I'll tell you about two amazingly prescient women with ideas that became American traditions. Sarah Josepha Hale, the woman who invented Thanksgiving, who was a permanent resident at North Laurel Hill, and Anna Jarvis, the mother of Mother's Day, who resides at West Laurel Hill. As a bonus, I'll talk a little about candy maker Stephen Whitman of South Laurel Hill, whose sampler box became a famed last-minute gift on both special days.
Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hills are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. You could wander on your own or take one of more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year. Or you can download the app for both cemeteries and chart your own way across the property. Find out more at www.thelaurelhillcemetery.org or www.westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill, and you have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. For more information on Henry Derringer, check out the transcript of a 1957 talk given at the American Society of Arms Collectors by Harry Knode, K-N-O-D-E, called Henry Derringer Jr. and His Imitators. For more on John B. Stetson, check out Stetson, the Eastern Hat That Tamed the West, at the online site Pennsylvania Center for the Book, or the 1997 book by Jeffrey B. Snyder, Stetson Hats and the John B. Stetson Company, 1865-1970. For Owen Wister, try Owen Wister, Brief Life of a Mythmaker, from Harvard Magazine, 2002.